We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. And welcome back to this mixed emotional Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. A lot of mixed emotions going on here, at least from my end. Pride of the team performance in the second leg. You know, we were on a good run. Beating Man United at Old Trafford. Continued it with a victory in Monaco. Nearly snatched the third goal to go through, but you can't help but go back to the first leg, can you? When um, we shot ourselves in both feet, our arms and our bum cheeks. And... um. We're not in the last eight because of it. But I don't wish to harp too much on that now because I've, I've sort of done that. And um, <clears throat> we're not in the same way as we were then. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we're in a lot better form. We need to look forward now. We've got an important FA Cup game coming up and we can push for second place. After our start of the season, not really too bad, is it really? But yeah, obviously, we want to be in the Champions League, but we're not. So, spilt milk and all that for another time. But um, I'm going to hand you over to the guys. James, Paul and Elliot, who um, have, a, have a great discussion about the match. <clears throat> I throw it all for today. I do apologise. would record it again, but I can't be bothered. I've got stuff to do. So I'm going to go yeah, back after the Newcastle game, which hopefully will be a lot more cheerful. We've another victory, but with smiles at the end. Until then. As predicted by literally every Arsenal fan everywhere, Arsenal win 2-0 away at Monaco and have yet another glorious defeat on the resume, uh, if there is such a thing. My name is Elliot Smith. You're listening to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I am joined by two uh, far more sophisticated, erudite, and coherent people who will contribute their thoughts on last night's win slash loss, um, what it means to the club, what the Champions League still means to the club, if anything other than money, and where we go from here. I think it'll be a spirited debate because I think we have some diverse opinions today, but it's uh, it hurts worse than I thought it would. 
I'm not going to lie. Uh, we knew we were probably going out after the first leg, but for whatever reason, it hurt a lot. And maybe it's the hope that kills you, as they say. And, and when the second goal went in, it felt like a third would follow. We'll talk about why it didn't, why we were in that position in the first place, and um, generally pick the bones out of uh, another disappointing exit in the Champions League. So let's introduce the people who will do the majority of the contribution to the non-ranty, complainy, depressing-y part of the podcast. The first is a slightly inebriated but always upbeat James. You can find him at GoonerFanatic49 on Twitter. James, how are you? I'm very well. I'm excellent, in fact, and it's good to be on. I don't un- I don't understand people like you. Can't you just be miserable <laughs> like the rest of us? Like this is an yeah, unhappy occasion. I, I tried it. You need to I, be I suitably depressed. Anyway, we'll figure out why you're not more depressed later. We'll do the psychoanalysis seg- uh, section of the pod in a little bit. And a man who is equally upbeat, but hopefully will express some regret and despair at some point during this pod. His name is Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Hello, Paul. Hello. How are you doing, Elliot? Uh, I'm miserable. You know, I, I love yeah. the Champions League. I would like us to win it. I would like us to, in order to win it, I don't know if you guys know this, I, I read the rules on the Champions League last night after we went out, and it turns out you have to get past the round of 16 to win the Champions League. So Really? We, yeah, yeah, we lost on another technicality, you guys. Uh, it's kind of frustrating. Those but, bastards, those Euro uh, bureaucracy bastards with yeah. some red tape. Yep, they yeah. suck. We hate them. Here's what we're going to do. we got a lot of analysis to get to. I like what we did with last week where we moved through the, the key moments in the game rather quickly so we could get to the rambly section uh, faster and have more time yeah. for rambling. So we're going to try to do that a little bit again. Um, but I'll give you each a crack. First, starting lineup. Um, I had opined ahead of the game that I would have loved to have seen Theo and Ramsey get a chance. I knew that wasn't very likely. And as it turns out, uh, Cazorla came back in. And uh, Walcott gave way to Welbeck. James, thoughts on the lineup? I mean, it's certainly attacking. Did you like it? Would you have made any changes? Well, I had opined that both Cazorla and Urza would definitely be in the starting lineup. Um, I thought they'd be fitted in by having Urza out wide and Ramsey and Cazorla being in the middle. I think it made sense because we knew that um, with two banks of, I suppose, well, it was two banks of forward, the two forwards playing, um, you know, pressing from high up the field, but. With a very defensive setup, um, having Cazorla playing that Ramsey role, but then interchanging with Urzel made a lot of sense to try and find the space and try and open up um, Monaco's defence, but also just to be able to keep the ball, um, recycle possession in that final third, where inevitably there wasn't much space to be found. I wasn't that surprised to see Ramsey because I think, Although you know Ramsey has provided a fa- provides a fantastic attacking threat, a lot of what he brings to the side as well as that defensive um, stability and his um, ability to track back and with that sort of fantastic stamina and engine that he has to sort of play that box to box role. And I think we we're more willing to sacrifice the defensive side of our games really gain to go for the three goals and go for the jugular last night. Um, and so. I mean, as we saw in the end, it was Cochrane that came off for Ramsey. So I guess you know, out wide, perhaps it you know definitely made sense to have two wide, quick players in in the form of Welbeck and Sanchez. Sanchez got moved out to the right. Um, obviously, there was an interchange between him and Danny, um, which you know at times caused Monaco problems. But also, what it meant was when we did lose the ball and we were desperate to um, 
to get it back. We had two players that are willing and um, able to harry and harass the Monaco's defence and really keep putting pressure on them and not, not let them sort of settle with the ball in a lot, with their back four and goalkeeper. As for the back four and Ospina, I mean, that was to be expected. Bellerin at right back. Monreal kept his place at left back. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I, it, I, wasn't, I was, certainly wasn't surprised by the lineup, and I think it, you know, in hindsight and even at the time seemed to make sense. Yeah, I didn't agree with using Cazorla, which I know is heresy because he's been so fantastic, but I just don't think he runs deep enough into the area to get into scoring positions. He doesn't score enough goals from open play. We saw it the minute Ramsey came on, getting into a good position to score a goal and taking his chance. Um, having said that, I don't think Cazorla played poorly, and look, from that deeper-lying position, I thought he did about as well as you could ask. I just don't know that he has the goal threat in him that Ramsey does. Um, as it turns out, though, it, it's a little bit hard to complain because we got ourselves into the position 2-0 up where we had 10 minutes or so to really chase that key third goal. You couldn't have drawn it up much better than that. What about you, Paul? I mean, would you have considered sacrificing Coughlin right from the start and just going totally hell for leather, or were you pretty happy with how the manager set us out? Well, um, so I think he hit the nail on the head in one sense that by the, I don't know, don't know what minute we scored that second goal, but with you know a healthy 20 or so minutes to go, or 15 or 16, I think, uh, all in. Um, you know, we had two goals behind us. We were right where we had dreamed we would be. You know, if we'd scored three before then, it would have been great, but that would have changed the momentum of the game. In a way, it was perfectly set that the last 16 minutes would be about us attacking them. So my only criticism on the lineup, because uh, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't as a manager, is that there was nothing surprising about it. It was, if you were going to guess the lineup, that was the lineup you would guess. Now, the counter point to that is, did it work? And, you know, over that, whatever it was, 70-something minutes, it did work to get us to to 2 nil ahead. I know we'd used some subs. And my second criticism, well, my second question is around the subs. Uh, I guess we'll get to that in a bit, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I think the lineup made sense. My concern would have been uh, Mertesacker at the back, but I wasn't really surprised he was playing. And I think we chatted about this during the week. What you lose in terms of being a good high-line defender, which he isn't, uh, maybe you gain in terms of his distribution and control of the ball at the back, and we were likely to see a lot of that. So, uh, you know, I, I understand your point on Theo, and I was... I'm always keen to see him on the pitch, but I think Welbeck did well and was a big factor in our first goal, if I remember it right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and some and some near chances that were missed. So he's he's kind of a little loose and sloppy at the moment in terms of some of his connecting play. He's got a little bit of the chaos factor about him, but you know I can't quibble too much. I think Cazorla was a big piece of our control and build up, and. I would not have risked not playing Coquelin from the start. I think that risks doing immense damage to the psyche of the club if it all turned to hell in a handbasket and we had a repeat of the first leg and the second leg. That goes beyond the result in the tie. So yeah. I think that would have been horrible for, for... Talk about putting a stamp of naivete. 
you know, you can score two goals in 15 minutes. So we didn't need to do anything crazy with not playing Coquelin. Um, Ramsey, yeah, I get that. But I certainly saw the logic in having Ramsey and Theo on the bench coming on after 70 minutes or whatever. Yeah, ultimately, it's hard because how do you complain about a game you win 2-0 away in the Champions League knockout round? Um, I think the problem is when it means that you crash out, there's a tendency to want to look for reasons to criticize. But the reality is that all the criticism, all the blame, if you will, belongs with the first leg. I mean, it's it's very hard to say we did anything Amen. wrong in a in a game we won two nil away in the knockout rounds of the Champions League, leaving ourselves sixteen minutes to get the third goal. So yeah, yeah. I mean, per, you could say you, you could try and have an argument with Wenger, but he'd say, "Sorry, that's perfect. It's never been done before. Up to the point where we've got sixteen minutes to go, it's perfection. R- regardless of how you got there, it's perfection." Yeah, and and I mean, you know, I, I'm not. I'm not a huge believer that you can look at a statistic in, in abstraction and, and have it tell a story. But I looked at the XG map or XG projections, which is expected goal projections over the two legs. And I think it was something like 5.2 for Arsenal to like 0.9 for Monaco. Um, again, that doesn't mean we deserve to go through and it doesn't mean we didn't shoot ourselves in the foot. But I think criticizing the second leg would be like walking in at halftime of a game you're trailing 3-0 watching the second half, and when you only win the second half 2-0, and I realize it was 3-1, but you just follow the analogy, complaining about the missed chances in the second half. Well, it was the first half that lost you the game. So we lost this tie quite obviously. I know I'm being Captain Obvious here. We lost this tie in the first leg, but because this was the leg where we got knocked out, there's going to be a tendency to look at the failings from it, which I think is a little bit precious and, and ignores the reality of what actually happened over the two legs. Um, let's go through some of the moments. Early on, Monaco started brightly, but after about five or ten minutes, we came to grips with it. We had a lot of possession, and we started to have them look a little bit nervous defending. The calls weren't going our way. James, just quickly, talk to me about, um, well, talk to me about whatever you'd like. But if you'd like to answer my question, it would be, what did you think of the refereeing performance in the first half, specifically some of the key controversial calls like the Alexis yellow for the dive? Um, so I can talk about whatever I want? No, you have to talk. About <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm joking. I am a tyrant. Um, well, I don't think the referee had a fantastic game, but I don't think he, I don't think there were any decisions that were I don't know how to put this as such because I don't did, think did it, let me ask you this did it they impact altered, they completely altered the shape of the game and here's here's the reason why I think the yellow card decision to Alexis Sanchez was absolutely appalling because he'd already there was already a time where Alexis had gone down and he waved play, play on and it, it's he, he seemed to give the indication that he thought Alexis was looking was sort of looking for the foul but it wasn't enough to warrant a, a dive and then I guess he perceived the set he, he perceived that foul in the box in the same manner and it was almost kind of like a he was reprimanding the player for um for sort of two two errors on his part or two sort of try two two times he kind of trying to make the most of um of the foul and i thought it was i don't know it was one of those where i think he should have just waved play on and i didn't because 
I I could see why Alexis went to ground. I thought it was like there was there was a, a kind of a nudge. That there was definitely a touch there, but I think it was a pretty fifty fifty challenge. I don't think many players were really asking for the penalty, but I don't think Alexis was really milking it. You know, he 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 went to ground as a result of the touch, and you know maybe there was a possibility of him staying on his feet. I do think there was a reason why he went to ground. There was no reason at all for him to be booked. But then again, I look at it, and I don't think, especially when you look at it in in real time. It doesn't look like it's a foul. I think it would be a very, very soft penalty. Um, although I can see why there's arguments for the fact that it was um, it was a foul as such from the Monaco player because again there was the touch. But I I, I think in that fifty fifty challenge, like you've got to give the especially in the penalty box, I guess to a certain degree, you've got to give the benefit of the doubt. Uh, sorry, it wasn't a fifty fifty ch- challenge as such, but it was it, it was a sort of coming together and. Um, I'm not, I'm, I wasn't convinced it was a foul and I was never asking for the foul but I think especially the way that Alexi plays um, given how he's constantly harrying players how he's constantly tracking back and he get, he's, he's such a committed player especially defensively um, you wonder if that you know, impacts his psyche going forward in, in the kind of challenges he's willing to commit to um, whether he's willing you know, to try and sort of dive in for a late tackle to try and win the ball back or um, but then again, I didn't really see that in his play. It's 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 a tough one for the ref. I I don't think he had a great game. I think he had he had some bad decisions that we can look that we have the sort of virtue of of watching back with um, technology and, and replays, which is you know obviously a discussion for another time. But ridiculous that the officials themselves don't have at their disposal. Um, and to be honest with you, I mean, in my inebriated and drunken state. Although I mean, at the time I was I was probably shouting that the referee is a wanker, um, which of course he is during the game. Um, any decision that doesn't go for us, but in the grand scheme of things, I don't really think the referee changed the game, and I, I personally don't think that that was necessarily uh, necessarily a penalty. But it certainly wasn't a yellow card. Let me tell you, I mean, it was a bad decision. Why I think the referee influenced the game to some extent, and admittedly, I watched the game uh, at the local pub where the local supporters group watches games and it was an Irish pub and it was St. Patrick's Day so it was a madhouse there. There were a lot of drinks uh, that were being emptied rather quickly. I don't know who was drinking my drink because it was empty every time I looked at it. So (laughs) if I find that guy I'm going to have stern words with him. But um, I think the problem is the ref was calling the game pretty tight which you expect in Europe but we were pressing very aggressively. And there were a lot of situations where I thought we cleanly took the ball off of the Monaco player. Amen. And they got pen- they got foul calls that a saved them from being in a in a a counterattack type situation where we took the ball off them in midfield and would have been in a good attacking position. B, it slowed the game down tremendously and allowed them to waste a little bit of time and shorten the game. And so. To me, if there was one thing the ref really did by calling the game as tightly as he did, and in some cases I think wrongly, it's that it cost us a lot of opportunities where we had turned the ball over in good positions and would have had a really great chance to to have a really quick transition to attack. So that impacted us. Um, now again, we're nitpicking because we did win the game 2-0, but that is, that is where I think the referee performance hampered us. Chances. Paul, there were chances aplenty before the first goal came um, a number of them fell to Giroud. Welbeck had some chances. Uh, two stand out in my mind. Two chances that I think should have should have is maybe harsh. Could have certainly is maybe the better word for what could have happened. Could have done better with them. What did you think of the Giroud header for one? 
as an opportunity for an early an early goal that may have even put more pressure on Monaco. Uh, yeah. I mean, was that a Bellerin uh, cross? Some good p- play from Bellerin and popped it up to Giroud by the far post. I believe it was. It mm-hmm. came in from that side, and uh, Giroud did well. And it was only a foot or so past the post. But I mean, he was going against one of their center backs. There was lots of pressure. You know, he threw himself out of it. You know, it was a half chance at best. Um, had he had he connected just a little bit better, it was a screamer into the net. I mean, it felt it was going in. But uh, I don't think you can beat him up too much on that. And, you know, any striker is going to have two or three opportunities and you want him to bag two or three good opportunities and you want him to bag at least one. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, he did great on the goal he got. So um, he did brilliantly. And that was right footed, too. He did. Fantastic finish. He did, and he hit it into the roof of the net, and without much margin for error, uh, center backs on the on the goal line. So you can't you can't say that was a gimme by any means, and he just absolutely uh, raised the roof of the net. So I, I think by halftime, one goal from Giroud was about fair for his allotment. Yes, there were a couple of chances beyond that, but. I don't. Most half chances aren't half chances. They're probably twenty-five percent or thirty percent chances, which is why the conversion rate tends to be twenty-five to thirty percent. Yeah, there, I think another uh, obvious chance that stands out that would have been a huge talking point um, was the Koscielny miss. Mm. Not an easy finish. Hit it off the crossbar. In the bar, it was unclear to me at the time. I thought offside had been given. But mm. in retrospect, it was a header from the defender, so I do not think it was offside. Though, um, so if it's a knockback from the defender, it has to be specifically a pass back. Right. It's not enough that he passed it back. It has to be a pass back to the goalkeeper, as I understand the rule. I used to think it was just a pass backwards, but it's not. It has, he would have to have been passing back to the goalkeeper, and that's not clear to me. Yep. It's certainly not clear to me that that's the decision we would have got, so... Well, it it it, it, de- it was a it, listen, it definitely came off the um, the head of a Monaco defender, um, but yeah. as as the commentators were quick to clarify at the time, and it was given offside, is that the call in itself was correct because, as Paul said, the pass in itself has to be completely intentional from the opposing team for it to not be classified as um, an interference, in, um, for it to not be cl- classified as sort of a. Um, headed on for an offside. So I mean, because, I guess that's because like the pressure that's being put on by the Arsenal player, therefore then allows for Koscielny to be able to get to get the chance in itself. So well, well another by the big moment. Of the law, that was an offside call. Well, another big moment, James. That would have been a goal uh, if it had gone in the net. I don't know if you guys know this, but the ball has to go into the net um, for it to be a goal. Had it had it had that happened, uh, this one would have been a goal. Was the Welbeck shot the volley mm. from the top of the box? that hit off the defender on the ground and then seemed to, in slow motion, just sort of trundle out for a uh, corner kick just past the post. Um, James, I felt at the time that Welbeck should have done better there. It's not the hardest volley in the world. He has a lot of room and time there. I mean, he had a ton of room if you watch it again. Should he have pulled that down and tried to pass it in? Should he have been a little more clinical with the volley? Uh, or do you just have sympathy for him? He, he connected cleanly and hit it right down the middle. For me, I think you'd like to see your striker do better there. I mean, if you close your eyes and you picture Wayne Rooney in that position, he's passing that sweetly into one of the corners of the net. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not the most technically gifted footballer myself, so... Um, but you also don't play... Whether you will, personal, so. <laughs> right. Um, so whether my opinion is, is, is valid or not is, is another question entirely. But My opinion's never my... valid, but I'm always free to give it. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, here I am too. So the um, I think he was absolutely right to take the volley. I think he hit it very cleanly. But as you say, with the goalie already on the ground, I mean, the defender at the time was on the ground as well. Um, oh, sorry. Well, the goalie, sorry, the goalie was on his feet, and I think he did have that shot covered anyway. It was right down the he middle. Had to, yeah. He had, I think he had to aim for it because it was kind of going somewhat to Welbeck's sort of left corner-ish, although mostly down the middle. I think he kind of hit it slightly across him. I think the move there was definitely to go to um, the right side, the near side, because of that that in itself was going away from the defender, and I think that would have been a lot more difficult for the keeper to save. And listen, I mean, one of the major issues I've certainly had with Welbeck, and I think most people have had too, is that his finishing isn't particularly clinical, is it? I mean, if that falls to probably even, say, Giroud, um, maybe like a Ramsey, for example, or Alexis, um, an, an, an Alexis or an on-form Theo, you'd, you'd expect them to probably put it away. Um, but that being said, I mean, it's still not the necessarily like the, it's not a bang on clear sort of, you've got to put that in the back of the net. It's still a, you know, still a volley from a decent way out, although with plenty of time, plenty of space. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, it's, it's disappointing, but I think in a match you tend to see those kind of chances and he, he hit it on target. That's what you want. You know, first and foremost, you want to hit it clean and hit it on target and see what happens. You know, that could quite easily have hit off the defender and, um, and bounced in away from the goalkeeper. There's, no doubt about that. He almost hit it too cleanly for that to have been the case because it kind of rocked it off the def- defender well, well out of the way for a corner. So, but yeah, I mean, listen, if we if we want to pick Bones, sure, he, he could have done better. There's no denying that. But then again, I don't think in in the grand scheme of things over a season with with Welbeck, you probably do expect him to, you, you're not necessarily, you know, bet, betting your house on him to put those away. Okay, we're going to back up to substitutes after this, but let's get towards the, the latter portion of the game, and then we'll go back and talk substitutions for a minute. Uh, Paul, Ramsey's goal, beautifully taken. He seems to know how to score from that position. That seems to be, I think, if you put him on that spot in the box, he just always seems to find the goal near side or far post. Um, he put it away uh, brilliantly again, and it really gave you a moment to think, I think it was on 78 minutes, that this could happen. Um Good play in the build-up. Theo hits the post. Ramsey tucks it away. What were your thoughts on that goal? And at that point, did you think it was going to happen for us? Um, I never quite thought it was going to happen for us. I don't know why. Maybe I was just keeping my emotions in check. Um, it could have. It should have, you would say. I guess my criticism overall of of this performance is that we should have always suspected that if things went right, it would come down to the last 15 minutes and we would have to find a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll get into that with the substitutions in a little bit. I'd like to talk a little bit more, but that's my main criticism. We always knew there was going to be an end game, and I think we should have and could have done better. In it- terms of the goal, Monreal did brilliantly. I was surprised he was taken off for Gibbs. Mm-hmm. Um, he may um, have just been spent. I mean, he yeah. may have said something to someone. Said, "I'm gassed." I, you know, I got. Yeah, he left. may well have been, um, but we'll talk about that in substitution. I thought he did great on the cutback, which was 
what we should have been doing for the last 16 minutes, cutting it back time and time again, mm -hmm. if possible, especially with Walback, uh, sorry, with Walcott on the pitch. I mean, he's only on the pitch a few minutes. I think he did really well on that chance. Sure, he hit the post, but, you know, this shit ain't easy. Yeah. And, uh, he was unlucky. Unlucky Theo. You never heard that before. No, you didn't. And, you know, m what does it mean about Ramsey? I mean, if you take the last two games, it's not hard to believe he's going to return to super Ramsey. So, you know, maybe the best news out of all of this is he he seems to it it wasn't a bubble. He's not going to regress to average. He mm -hmm. seems to have that eye. I don't know if he can be that complete footballer we saw last year, but he's going to have a large piece of that super Ramsey part of his game is just him. This is what he does. He um he adds a, a totally different energy and dynamic to yeah. that deep-lying playmaker position than Cazorla does. And it's not that Cazorla doesn't play it brilliantly. He does. But I always thought Ramsey should start ahead of Cazorla in this game because I think he just has more goal threat in him and because he likes to run deeper into the box than Cazorla does. You would not find Cazorla that deep to collect that ball where Ramsey did. Um, and that was why I felt that Ramsey would be the better one to start because I also think Giroud feeds off the runs he makes. Um... I want to go through one more moment in the match real quick with James, then we'll talk subs, and then we're going to talk poor performers on the day because we're nothing if not miserable bastards. Um, and we're going to talk about then, we're going to finish with just how terrible this is for Arsenal as a football club and how we should probably burn the stadium down and start over. Um, so first, let's cover the, the final big moment of the game for me is the Giroud header that at one point I thought maybe had gone over the line but it was well saved. James, your thoughts on should Giroud do better there? Is that chance better left for Alexis? Is it just great stop from the keeper? What did you make of that? Um, there's not that much room at that back post, really. There's not that much to aim for. When I saw that, I wasn't really sure whether it was Giroud or Alexis that got the touch. They kind of got a little bit in the way of each other. They're both just so desperate to get on the end of the ball. Um, I don't think you can blame Giroud for taking that at all. I think I ideally, you know, if, if because it happens so quickly and Alexis is so close to him, he hasn't got enough time to sort of move away and allow it for Alexis. And even if he does, I think it was almost as if, it, you know, it was almost too, um, you know, he was almost, they were so close to each other that Alexis would almost have been somewhat put off by Giroud, I feel. Um but yeah, I mean, listen, ideally it, it falls to Alexis at that back post because he has a better angle to aim at. He can almost go across the goalie. Um, it comes at quite a nice height for him. I think Giroud did extremely well. It's one of those chances where, to a certain degree, I mean, a few more inches to the right, you get it per, you know, you have to get it absolutely perfect right into the top corner. Then, yes, maybe Giroud's scoring, but it's, it's, it, it's still a tough chance. And I think he did very well with it. Keeper, you know, keeper was was equal to it and it was a shame because that was ultimately the the only chance we had after scoring the second and it was another one of those it was another one of those moments it wasn't quite the Van Persie chip against AC Milan mm -hmm. um to make it fall but it was you know you when, when like he didn't it, yeah. yeah when he didn't score that that was you know because I I was definitely full of hope after the uh after the second goal and because I said to my friend, if we score before the 80th minute, um, then 
I'll be hopeful we'll score a third. And when that chance came and, and then when it went, you started to lose that little bit of hope. And unfortunately, I, th- I mean, maybe we'll come to this, but I think overall I thought the performance was, you know, I, I know it's so easy to say given uh, the context of the game, but performance-wise, I thought we were absolutely excellent. Honestly. Our press, our pressing uh, was fantastic, which it's the first fantastic. time we've played that way all season and we executed it brilliantly, I thought. Also, with that, I thought we were as good as I've seen Arsenal with the ball in the final third against a team that were very good, that was so solid as a unit, that made it very tight. There was very few... I don't... Pressed us very well from the front. They they gave us very little time, and I thought the way we kept the ball under pressure, and I know we often say Ozil and Cazorla are excellent at that, but we've seen them come up undone against the Chelsea's and the Liverpool's, etc. I thought... I mean, I don't know. I don't have the stats in front of me. I, I'd be very interested to see how good our, our passing accuracy was as a team because, you know, it's one of those games where you'd expect your passing accuracy to almost be decreased because so much of that ball is being per, played. 87%. Which is, uh, you know, like I said, you would almost expect a game like that for your passing uh, percentage to, to drop significantly because so few there's so little of the time that you're you're having the ball kind of casually in in the midfield of the park or at the back four you we were constantly bringing it to that final third constantly having to to keep the ball around that area but but exact type just of game that fair, Monaco are best suited to just to be fair 56% for Giroud uh 74% for Sanchez a not fantastic 84.2% from Ozil. I mean, 94% but, from Coughlin, 98% from Monreal, 96% from Mertesacker, 96% from Koscielny, 88.9% from Bellerin. We had a lot of high percentage passing out of the back because there was no pressure being put on our back four. Now, I'm not taking away from your point because I think, in general, you're right. We did better with the ball in the final third than I've seen us do a lot of this season, but... Are, the numbers are a little bit inflated by the complete lack of pressure that was put on our players in our half when we collected the ball deep and started to build up. Um, I mean, sure, for... but they, 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 those players were also very consistently just trying to bring it straight, you know, straight into that half of the pitch Absolutely. instead of you know you you have plenty of games where in those kind of situations where there's not much pressure on the back four, you can sort of sit on the ball a little longer. You 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 feel a little more. Um, you know, you feel a little more relaxed and just play in between your two centre backs, out to your full back, back to the centre back, wait until that little opening um comes about because you know, you you only have to you win the game or you only have to win the game by one goal. But yesterday we knew we had to go get the three. So as soon as there was an option um to be made by one of the midfielders, etc. I mean the ball was going directly directly to them. And although I I actually do definitely take both of your points as uh, it was you guys were talking about it on Twitter that Koscielny does very much tend to look to Mertesacker, who then distributes the ball forward. But you even look towards, say, Coquelin, and sure, to a certain degree, maybe there wasn't that much pressure being put on him. But frankly, I thought, you know, we've talked a lot about his poor distribution. He was and I've, fantastic I've actually last said, night, 90, 94.6%. He was, he was, he, not only was he fantastic from a statistical point of view, the passes he was attempting last Last night would not your balls to Koscielny and to Mertesacker. He was he was constantly looking up. He was constantly breaking in space forward whenever whenever he was given the opportunity. He was playing a lot of diagonal balls forward. I thought his distribution in particular was absolutely excellent for someone who isn't renowned for playing for for being as sort of 
uh, for being able to recycle the ball quite so well as other players in our team. Yeah, uh, enough positivity. This is getting ridiculous. Paul, can you bring us down to earth a little bit? <laughs> so, um, we talked about a few players. I, I thought Coquelin was overall really good, but a bit hit and miss. That's that's what I'll say about Coquelin. Um, but that was the nature of the game. You know, he well, he's, a, he's dead weight in the attack, right? I mean, realistically, yeah. he's not going to get you a goal. He's not going to create a goal. Yeah. When we talk about passing stats, and I know we all know this, high passing stats is not necessarily the thing you want to see because you, there's a certain risk-reward, and Ozil's in the risk-reward business, and we've heard Wenger say in the past he'd prefer a brave passer than a safe passer. Well, I, that, thought, I mean, look, not that we want to bring thought, him up, but that was Cesc Fabregas when he played for Arsenal. He was never our highest pass accuracy player. He was yeah. always our most key passes, most through ball player, you know. So, so unfortunately, I, I'm not, you know, nobody has has the ownership on what's right here. But unfortunately, in, in the end, we got to use our eyes and, and that's why we'll never agree on it. I thought Ozil was, I, I thought he and a couple of others weren't untidy unnecessarily a few times at points when we weren't particularly pressured yesterday, but 95% of what Ozil did he was absolutely what he should have been doing. I loved what Ozil did yesterday for most of it. All right, we're, you uh, know, I'm going to stop you there only because I want bi- I have big sections I want to discuss Ozil and Sanchez specifically. So why good. don't you let me know what you thought about uh, the substitutions really quickly, and I'll just list them out here. 62 minutes, Coughlin came off for Ramsey. 71 minutes, Welbeck came off for Walcott. 82 minutes, Monreal came off for Gibbs. Uh, what do you think of that, Paul? Good, good, and I'm confused. So mm-hmm. uh, Ramsey, you know, if you weren't going to play Ramsey, the reason would be because you saw it going the full, that full last 25 minutes, you wanted him to, you wanted his energy on there. So, you know, it, it was all set up perfectly, and it might have gone to extra time and penalties. And yes, you want Ramsey on the pitch. Walcott uh, absolutely makes sense bringing him on then. Uh, was instrumental in the goal, but kind of anonymous in the final 16 minutes. And what you really wanted was people getting in behind and us finding those people, i.e. Walcott, to cut it back because we weren't going to be able to bombard them with crosses given the size of their defense. Um, I'm not going to open up this debate, but you could make an argument that with Monaco tiring and a little more static in the last 15 minutes, it wouldn't have hurt to bring on someone like Podolski who can just collect it at the edge of the box and rifle it in towards goal and either score or, or create G- havoc with oh, a Jesus rebound. Elliott, save us now. Yeah, no, I'm, then, not, I'm not, like I said, I'm not going to go down that road, good, but good. you look at who was on the bench last night and yep. the only forward on the bench was Theo Walcott. Yeah. So, you know, just And you look at our third substitute. And I hear what you said earlier, but still, Gibbs for Monreal was kind of a bit of a nothing. I, I, I mean, it could have been the thing that turned the game because, you know, Gibbs can get in behind. He can cut it back. He is almost a winger when he plays on that side. So I get the logic. Uh, and had we scored the goal, I'd shut up. But what I didn't see in the last 16 minutes was an effective either bombardment, and I don't think that was ever on the cards given the massiveness of their defenders. I mean, those guys are just freaking brutes. You know, they had Not six, to mention seven... players like Kondogbia in midfield. Yeah, mm. so they got like six or seven players who were like oaks in that defense. Mm-hmm. And, 
you know, I heard people saying, why are we trying? To, why did we try and cross them? I, I don't think we did try that many crosses. I mean, we did as we got more desperate. My question is, why didn't we try and get in behind them? We tried to play it around in front of them and be clever, but we didn't get wide and in behind. Our success on aerial duels, by the way, 63% to their 37, though. So we, we did have success in the duels. I, I'm going to say this. And James, I, I, I want to start to open this up now to a little more general debate on the on the game and then hopefully have just enough time to talk about the Champions League generally. I think Alexis Sanchez was very fortunate to stay on for 90 minutes. Um, mm. he, he is a, a sensational player, and he has been sensational for us this season. One of the things that drives me nuts about Twitter and social media generally is that it seems like you're not allowed to say the obvious if it if it somehow is perceived as having an agenda or being you're, you're going to be labeled as having an agenda or falling into a group of people who are either positive or negative. I mean, Lionel Messi can have a bad game, and I could go on Twitter and I could type, "Not a great game from Messi today," and no one would attack me. Well, someone presumably would. But if you say Alexis Sanchez was really poor today, you're going to get inundated with people who are calling you an idiot. You don't understand football. He's a great player. What are you talking about? Alexis Sanchez was poor yesterday. It didn't come off for him. He hasn't been fantastic lately. Maybe he's tiring. That doesn't mean I don't think he's brilliant, sensational, our best player, having a great season. But sometimes I just think, for whatever the reason, we're not allowed to state the fucking obvious that your eyes tell you. So I'm going to ask you, James. I mean, what did you think of Sanchez um, and and the game he had and the fact that he was left on the whole game? And would you have maybe taken him off, you know, instead of a Welbeck or instead of, I mean, obviously we don't know what was behind the Monreal Gibbs substitution, but would you have considered taking him off? Um, well, I'm going to start with his performance overall, which was pretty poor um, from an attacking point of view, at least. I can see, you know, you can see what he brings to a side even when he's having a bad performance. You know, we, we talk about it. We talk about it every time. You know, he's a terrier. He's, you know, he's got that sort of South American spirit. He's constantly tracking back when he loses the ball. He's constantly, you know, he's right back on that defender. He's causing problems if. You know, sometimes there's, there's quick counterattacks that the opposition starts, and he, as as that sort of you know main attacking presence that he is, is the one that's coming back and 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 helping recover the situation that you know he's probably in himself caused. And of course, the type of player he is, he's you know we talk about high risk reward at Ozil. I mean, he's as high as high a risk reward player as we have in our team. He's he's constantly taking on dribbles. He's tra- trying to beat players. He's he's constantly putting himself in situations in which there's plenty of opportunity for players to nick the ball off of him the thing is when when he's on form his ability to kind of like cut back on that with that right foot of his and like drag the ball back slightly and, and kind of slalom in at a, at a sort of diagonal angle tends to be far more efficient than than it has been recently and we saw that a lot of our attacks would often break down with Alexi but I think that's you know I don't I personally wouldn't have taken him off and the reason is, when you have a world-class player like that, no matter his form recently, 
his performance overall in the game, which it, you know it it wasn't gr- like it wasn't great. It, I mean, it, it was far from great, frankly. But if, he was still, you know, he, he still always wants the ball. He's still always trying to make things happen. He's still a player that, no matter even when he's playing like that, defenders are constantly fearful of him because he has that ability to to just make something happen out of nothing. Um, and I think that threat in itself, that aura that he has because of the qualities he possesses, is something that you that in itself is something defenders have to worry about. It gives them something extra to think about. I wouldn't have taken him off because, A, I don't think Welbeck was really bringing that much to the team. But then again, if given the way we resorted to, which was the most disappointing part of the game in the last seven minutes, to sort of just constantly to just throwing the ball into the mixer, um, which we hadn't done all game. And I think that was a real sign of desperation on our part. And I was something I really think, you know, the, the team will have regretted looking back at it, the lack of patience we showed. Um, you know, maybe if, 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 if that was actually like part of the tactic, if that was if, if that was what we really wanted to do, then sure, Welbeck is much more suited to that than, say, Alexi. But I think when you have a player of that talent, you've, you've always got that inkling in you. How, you. You know, even me, for example, I know that he's he's been pretty poor these last few games, but I thought during the game, I was like, you know what, Ale- he, Alexi has that in him to change the game. And, you know he has that you know whether it be the free kick in the middle of the in the box you, you you no matter how badly he's been playing you want Alexi to take it because he's got that technique he's got that ability he's got that character as well in it you put him into sort of that Messi Ronaldo Suarez kind of category of even if he's having a bad game you don't take him off because at any moment that extra quality that he has could shine through one of those kind of things a franchise player. Yeah. A franchise. So I, I don't really want to put him necessarily in the Suarez. Well, no, I don't, I don't mean he's that good. Now, I'm saying because... just the same, the same rules apply in that you leave that – when you need goals, you leave that player on because even on an off day, they could have that moment of brilliance that no other player possesses. Certainly in our team because – That's what I meant, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Without, with, yeah, certainly for me, without a doubt. I mean, especially given the lack of options we had on the bench. But, but maybe let me ask you Ris- like this. Maybe, listen, if Rosinski was fit as well, if Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain was on the bench and you bring on Walcott for Welbeck and then you also have the possibility to bring Alex on, then yeah, you know, then, then I think there'd be a strong argument to be made. But I think it made sense to take off Welbeck for Walcott. And we saw that made a big difference. I definitely, you know... And then maybe after that, you give Alexi till the eighty-third minute. Was that when that was, that was when Monreal came off? And then maybe able to put on another quick player, a similar play, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain, who can also take on players and and you know say, well, you know, Alexi, you've you've had eighty-three minutes at it. Let's let's give someone fresh a, a go and see if they've got new ideas. Yeah, I I will say it this way. First of all, my problem with Alexis is that. When it's not coming off for him, he slows the ball down, um, right? He likes to dribble a lot. The ball gets to his feet. It doesn't move as quickly. He only had one successful dribble um, and one shot off target yesterday. So it really wasn't coming off for him, and it slows our buildup play down. But my problem with, like, a Theo for Welbeck is you know how these games go. If there's one goal in it with 10 minutes to go, you're just going to be lofting balls into the box and, and dumping balls into the box. And Welbeck is really the only other player we have on the front line, you know, Mertesacker and Koscielny aside, with Giroud, who you believe is going to win a ball in the air and possibly, you know, help you scrap a goal when you're, when you're just throwing it into the box. And I think Welbeck could have been very handy to have in that situation. Um, Paul, what did you think of... of Sanchez's night and and maybe just 
you can quickly add to what James said because then I want to talk about Ozil a, a little bit and what I thought was a hit and miss performance from him, and and then we'll get into just sort of some post mortem on the Champions League. Sure, sure. Um, I thought Sanchez looked tired. I thought it was an underpowered performance. I pretty much agree with both of your points there. Uh, I understand why he was on the pitch. Uh, had I had somebody like, as James pointed out, an Oxlade Chamberlain on the bench, uh, he might have been a candidate for that kind of that final substitution mm-hmm. uh, to take him off. Um, but I think I understand why he was left on the pitch, but I just think he was tired and and all this running around like a maniac on the training ground is catching up with him and he's played pretty much every game. I think he needs a breather. Yeah, I think uh, the the problem we're seeing with Alexis right now is actually reminiscent of the problem we saw with Alexis at the very, very beginning of the season. If you guys remember the first few games, which actually led to the manager not starting him in the North London Derby which is that I think his desire to dribble and have the ball at his feet and create on his own is right now a little bit at odds with our passing style. And in the middle Mm. of the season, he had sort of found the right balance, and now I think he's maybe going back to a little bit of that individualism, leaning too heavily on on his own abilities to try to to beat a man and create on his own. I think that's right, and I think when you get tired, you tend to go back to your comfort zone, and that's his fair comfort point. zone. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, let's talk about Mesut Ozil for a minute. So I I think Mesut Ozil is another problematic player to debate because he's been such a target for abuse by journalists and the media and people who just want to brand him as a flop that now anytime you're critical of him, you, you are just abused like, like nobody else. I mean, like the amount of abuse you receive for being critical of Ozil – is, I think, a direct reaction to people taking exception to the criticism he's received. The problem is sometimes criticism is deserved, certainly not the degree of it that he's that he's received, but some of it is deserved. Some of it goes down to being a 42 million pound player, obviously, and the expectations that go with that. And for me personally, I will admit, I expect Mesut Ozil to be our best player in almost every game, and I expect Mesut Ozil to be the best player in England. Because he's good enough to be. He cost enough to be. I'm not saying money demands return. But, you know, then you'll have people who say, well, you're just not sophisticated enough because the things that Mesut Ozil does don't show up in a stat sheet or on the pitch. You have to see them with your third eye and your chakras have to be connected. And you have to exist on an astral plane where you can understand football at, at an ethereal level. And then you'll see Mesut Ozil's benefit. I mean, some of the shit people come up with to defend Mesut Ozil, not that he needs defending. He's been fucking brilliant, especially since he's come back stronger, more determined. He's, he's, he's been brilliant this season since coming back from injury. But def- the, the defense of him usually goes down to, oh, well, he what you don't see is the way he's creating space for other players and the way he uses space and he inverts space and he creates whole wormholes and he appears on other pitches and other dimensions. And if you, if you could see that, then you'd understand Mesut Ozil. It's like, it's ridiculous. You know, I mean, it's still football. You pass the ball to a teammate and the teammate scores and you got an assist. Like, I, I think the thing that frustrated me about Ozil specifically last night was the last 15 minutes of the match. He attempted eight crosses... He had one accurate cross. In those last 15 minutes where you're looking for your best players to unlock a little bit of magic, we saw Ozil deliver some of the lamest, poorest, weakest, most aimless 
deliveries into the box from wide positions with no pressure on him that you'll ever see. You know, and and it was just frustrating because there were scuffed crosses, there were poor corner kicks, there were crosses that didn't get past the first man that were easily cleared. You know, and, and that's where you expect a player Mesut Ozil's quality and brilliance with no pressure on the ball to be able to loft it right to the back post and put it on someone's head or, you know, whip it in to have it land by the penalty spot. And we just didn't see that decisive contribution. Um, I'm not saying Mesut Ozil was poor throughout the game, but when, when we needed him to step up, the ball was at his feet a number of times in the last 10 minutes and his delivery was poor. So... James, go ahead. Tell me I'm, I don't have the proper shockers in alignment to understand Mesut Ozil's game. Um, I agree with what you're saying about the last 10 minutes. The last 10 minutes were the most frustrating minutes of the game for obvious reasons, but the way in which we changed the approach to the game was extremely counterintuitive to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that was represented in the way in which the team played as a whole. It wasn't just Mesut that was was sort of throwing the ball in the mixer aimlessly, which is what it seemed like to me. Um, any player that got it outside the box, whether it was Gibbs, Cazorla a couple of times, threw it in. And, you know, especially with Welbeck not being on the field, did Mertesekis end up moving moving forward? It, it it reeked of desperation. And I think, you know, there was there was a great little bit of analysis that um, Gary Neville did a while back on, on that Man City final game of the season, the sort of, the memorable Sergio Aguero goal, and the importance of top sides to be patient in t- at, at when you're desperately seeking that last goal in the final few minutes of the game. The ability to to keep playing the game the same way you would in the fifth minute of the game, in the in the thirtieth minute of the game, in the sixty fifth minute of the game, in the seventieth minute of the game, right through until that, right through until you know extra time or stoppage time in in a match. You've Especially the way that Monaco approached the game and, and was so defensively solid, with those with so many people crammed in in the box. With you know they're very tall, athletic players. They're they're very well suited to to playing against sides that are just sort of that are just going to throw the ball into the box, um, and and look to target to our target man in in Giroud or um, any of the taller players in in our in our lineup. And you know outside of Giroud going forward, we have at the time we had Sanchez walk up beside him. Then Ramsey, who's not the most physical in the air, Cazorla, who's certainly not. Ozil, if he wasn't the one making the cross, he's, he's although he's not short, he's certainly not the the best aerially. I, it just really didn't it didn't play into our hands. But I don't think that was necessarily down to to Mesut as such. I think that was just down to the way in which the team sort of reacted to knowing that they just needed that last that last gasp winner. Um, and unfortunately, that approach was was poor. That being said, I thought Mesut was actually one of, if not our best player on the day. Um, I think the way, you know, we talk a lot about his language style, his body language throughout the season and how sometimes when the chips are down, you know, he looks like he's not in it. He doesn't really take the game by the scruff of the neck. Last night, Mesut was looking for the ball every single moment of the game. He was the one. He was picking up the ball. I think that's also why it worked quite well with him and Cazorla because they would swap. Ozil would sometimes come deep. He wanted that ball. He always wanted to make things happen. He was constantly searching for the, the forward pass to Giroud. He was, he was the player who was constantly breaking that line between our, our back four, our back five, forward in, and, and, and making chances and making and allowing ourselves to, to get forward as the pitch and to start creating attacks. The amount of times that he was able to slip Welbeck in on the right, he played a, 
I, I, I remember making a couple of fantastic key passes through the Monaco defence that, that slipped Welbeck in. One of them was Welbeck sort of pulled one back from the right and Giroud, he got onto it and it kind of like looped up into the goalie's hands. Another one where it was a, a dangerous ball in from Welbeck that was cleared. Several times, we, I, I don't remember a game quite like that. I mean, you know, I don't, maybe it was the Champions League, the the sort of occasion, but where Ozil was just so desperate to to get on the ball and and try and in an in an Ozil-y way make things happen, create those spaces in the final third, and and constantly look to um, to pick out a man. I mean, the amount of times that he would shimmy with his left foot. Um, the, I don't know how many ankles he broke last night, but it certainly he definitely seemed like did a couple that. might have done. I'll, I'll give him credit for this. He was great at keeping possession under some pressure. He, you know, he really is the master of using his 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 body and his his strength now to hold on to the ball under pressure. Which, when he first came to England, was really the biggest criticism of him. He's he's now turned that into a strength, which is great to see. I have to admit, the parts of his game that frustrated me were. Later in the game, when I was probably most intoxicated and most stressed out, and that's not a good time to really be evaluating someone's performance, I do agree he had done some really great things in the first 60 minutes. Um, Additionally, I was frustrated. He had one shot from the top of the box that he sent wide, um, and I just think with his technique and his skill, you know, it just went wide of the post. And I'm not saying it was an easy chance, but again, this is the tough thing about Ozil. I'm not comparing Ozil to other good players or decent players. I'm comparing Ozil and holding Ozil up to some of the best midfielders in the world because that's who he should be compared to. To a Marco Royce, I know it's a totally different type of player. To a Cesc Fabregas who has tailed off dramatically. To, you know, to, to some of the, the best creative players in the world that play in the 10 for teams like Barca, Madrid, Bayern... Chelsea, United City, you know, all of that. And I just think with chances like the one he had that he put wide or with the ball at his feet late in the game with some of the chances he had to deliver better crosses, I was a little frustrated by that. But I think you've made a compelling argument, James, to be fair, that he also was a part of everything that we did well. The other challenge, and and I said this at the top of the podcast, and I think this is what everybody has to try to keep in mind. This was a 2-0 away win in the knockout rounds of the Champions League. You can look for things to be annoyed at, but it was actually a phenomenal performance. It only looks frustrating in the context of how we totally shit the bed in the first leg. So, you know, looking for negatives in a 2-0 away win is a little silly. The negatives were really in the first leg. Paul, I know you're up against a time stop, so if you don't mind, do we have about five minutes or do you have to run? Sure. Okay. Let's, let's do five minutes. Let's bang on for five more minutes. Let me do this. Let me give you a, a crack at talking about Ozil, and then we're each going to get a last word about the Champions League this season. Yeah, I'll I'll go. I agree. I think we all agree he had a really good game. The question comes down to the last ten or sixteen minutes, and I do think that's a fair criticism. But I haven't studied it well enough. But to me, Wenger and Ozil should have been the architects of that last sixteen minutes, and therefore the failure. To some, to some degree has to lie on his shoulders that not only is he putting in the crosses, but he's not creating the series of movements that gets us in behind if that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he, he has to carry, I think, I'd like to look at it a little further, but I think because of the absence of what we needed to see that he has to bear that responsibility. 
I do think we all got – you can say it should have been Monaco who got tired at the end of the game. But actually, I think it was predictable that we would be the people who would start to run out of gas. And I think those were tired ideas at the end of the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you hear the legend of of Fergie over at Man United and, you know, before every game, they their training sessions would involve playing that last five minutes, how they were going to do it. Now, a lot of it was aerial and crosses and whatever, but whatever your end game is that was what United were famous for going into Fergie time and they made a habit out of it. And I'm sure we practiced and I'm sure we did the work on it in terms of, I'm sure we planned it, but we didn't execute it because it was kind of, you know, what we did on the day, on the night, the 2-0, wonderful. That last 16 minutes, we had them where we wanted them. We had their cojones in our hands and we didn't squeeze them. We rolled them around. Yeah. Yeah, like Benoit balls. Yeah, that's yeah. unfortunate. Um, so that's a pretty image. Thanks. Just think on that for a bit. Um, yeah. It's it's tough to take. It's tough to go out that way, um, and it ultimately forces you to ask the question now, which is, what is the Champions League for Arsenal? What what is it going to take for Arsenal? to do better in the Champions League. I think we are a much, much better team than Monaco. I think we're a little unlucky if you look at, again, the expected goals from this two-legged tie. But fundamentally, we seem to be hitting a glass ceiling in the Champions League. James, I'll give you you know, 90 seconds. Is this a situation where Arsenal need better players, better luck, or better preparation, or a combination of the three? Um, better... It's a tough one. I'm not. I'm cautious to say better players because I think what's the most frustrating aspect of this Champions League this time around, relative to the last few failings, aside from playing a weaker opposition, is that over this past sort of stale decade, if that's what we want to refer to it as, um, I don't think our team has really been. Apart from maybe 07, 08, there might be a couple of individual seasons that you can pick out. I don't think our squad as a whole has really been strong enough for us to genuinely really consider ourselves even able to pull off a kind of Chelsea-esque Champions League victory, especially given that we're not set up in that way. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've really had the players or the quality to ever realistically challenge for the league, the competition over this last 10 years or so. This is the season, and you know how I've been talking about up until February. I think now this is a squad that can really push on, and I think we're showing that in the league, to be honest with you. And that's what's so frustrating for me, is, especially given the draw, is I really feel that this is a squad now that has the ability to compete for the Champions League. We're obviously not as strong as the Barcelonas, the Real Madrids, the, or the Bayern Munichs, but frankly, I don't think anyone else really is. And I, but, you know, I, I think we're a lot closer now than we have been for a long while. Except and that we just a... got knocked out by Monaco. <laughs> um, well, yes. <laughs> but what I mean is based on sort of the quality of the squad that we have at our disposal. I, I don't disagree. Now, which now, is why this is so frustrating. <laughs> which is now frustrating. And listen, there's definitely the arguments being made that there is something endemically wrong, perhaps, with the way we set ourselves up. You know, whether that's the preparation, because it's so... It's been such a consistent occurrence that's taken place with the club 
That being said, if you look at it in a vacuum, which you can't because there's so there's been so many repetitive, um, you know, poor, uh, ways in which we've we've approached these types of these types of games in in such an incorrect and na- naive manner, or um, with such naivete as you might say, Elliot. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it, in in a vacuum, in a, in a in a knockout competition sometimes these things can happen but because it's happened so repeatedly you you would have to say that there is probably some there's there's probably something going on or something that is at error given the kind of experience we've had with the competition especially given that we've right. experienced going out in this mm-hmm. manner that being said I, I you know i mean all you listeners you know i i have a lot of confidence now in this team I know that this podcast has only started in the season in which I've grown particularly optimistic and confident with the side. I can assure you that hasn't been the case these last few years. So I, I, I really, I, I really, I, I would like to think if this were to happen again next season, given that that's two seasons in a row where you have a team that's really as competitive and as strong as it is now, mm-hmm. then there really is something seriously wrong, and there is a serious issue that has to be considered. Right. But I think if we can accept that perhaps this is the first season we've genuinely been able to compete, then maybe you can kind of write it off as it's a knockout competition. And on the day, it was just one of those blips. And I, you know, I, I think listen, you can I, certainly I, do that if, if that's your inclination. Hang, hang on one second there, James, because I know Paul has to go. Paul, just let, let me give you a final quick thought. Um, what's it going to take in your mind for us to go further in the Champions League? Does this have to point a finger at the manager? Would you be inclined to say it's luck? Is it players? What, what's your takeaways? Um, my takeaways, Arsene Wenger is a very smart man. He wants a Champions League success even more than we do. Uh, it's very frustrating. You can't get away from the feelings of deja vu. Yet we went out to Bayern. We went out to Barcelona a couple of times. Uh, you know, the, the one against Milan, that's not so easy to, to talk your way around. We could have done better that year. We should have done better this year. There are lessons to be learned. You can turn it around in a day and in a game, as we saw when we went to Man United and got a victory at Old Trafford that we'd given up ever seeing in our lifetime. It can all turn around in a second. That's why I'm hopeful. But based on if the past is the future, we're screwed. But the good news is the past isn't the future. We got to get smarter. We got. I don't want to hear the manager talking about how we were, <clears throat> excuse me, naive in the Champions League next year. Lose for some other reason, but not naivety. Yeah, I, I think that's well said. I'll let you go because I know you got to run. I'm going to finish Thanks, on guys. one topic. We'll talk to you after Newcastle this weekend. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. Cheers, Thanks, guys. All right. Have a good one, mate. Um, I just want to finish on this thought then, and I think it t- it ties in nicely with what Paul was saying. This is how many years in a row now that we've been knocked out of the Champions League after one leg, where it was the first leg that cost us, where realistically we were not in the the competition. I mean, this year to Monaco, last year to Bayern, the year before to Bayern, the year before to AC Milan, Right. Do I have that right, James? Yep. Um, and I yes. And was it Barcelona before that? I, I think at remember. Barcelona before that we gave ourselves a chance, right? Was that the Van Persie sent off in the second leg year for the? Sure, but I, I think that was. I mean, I think it's been five years in a row now in the last sixteen. But we were, right. No, what, I, what I'm saying is, how many years yeah. is that in a row where we've been out after the first leg, essentially? 
And to me, oh, right. that's inexcusable. A club of our quality, I don't care if it's Barca or Bayern or Milan or Monaco, we should never be out after one leg. We're too good to not be able to figure out a way to have the second leg be a meaningful competition. And I know we've made it close, but realistically, a 3-1 loss at home is tie over, right? Losses at home where you give up heavy defeats or, or lots of away goals ends the tie. And it's four seasons in a row. Now, in Milan, we lost the tie away. What did we, what did we lose? 4-0 away? So, or 4-1? Yeah. The, the fact is, that to me, yeah, 4-0, that, that to me is failure in preparation, failure in mentality, failure in strategy and tactics and um, mental strength because the way we chased the game in the first leg is why we conceded a third goal, which we never should have, and that third goal is why we're not in the draw. And it's, it's mistakes like that that are not mistakes of quality. They're not lack of quality. They're lack of proper preparation, proper mentality, proper approach to the game. Good teams should not be out of a tie after the first leg. And I'll point you to Manchester City, Barcelona, who are going to be kicking off momentarily in their second leg. That tie is over. The tie is over because Barcelona defeated City in the first leg. And the reason they did is City set up stupidly. Pellegrini's gotten pelters for it, and deservedly so. He played that 4-4-2, and it backfired. A team of the quality of City, the defending Premier League champions, even against a Barcelona, should have a way to play at home where they are not out of the tie at halftime. And, and that's what we did, except we did it to a much, much worse Monaco team. And so for me, we don't need better players to get further in the Champions League. We need better preparation, better mentality. And what's frustrating is we always hear Arsene Wenger brag about how many years we've been in the Champions League consecutively and how many years in the knockout rounds. And I'll tell you what, he's right. It's a huge credit, that achievement. But that experience should mean no one is more prepared than Arsene Wenger to know what it takes in the Champions League, and we aren't demonstrating that. And so we're celebrating another moral victory in a second leg that doesn't matter because in the first leg we lost the tie. And that's what frustrates me. And I don't want to get all Debbie Downer here or Elliot Downer, which might as well be my Twitter handle, um, because we did win 2-0, because we did play well again, because we are riding high in form, but... I love the Champions League. I want us to win the Champions League. I think quality-wise, we should be right there with every team in the Champions League, maybe a notch below the Madrids and Barces and Bayerns, but not far below that. And something has to change in the way we approach these knockout rounds because the naivety, naivete, na naiveness, everyone hates the way I say that word. I don't know. <laughs> that we show in these first legs is costing us. So, James, I'll just finish with you on this point. Why are we not able to use the vast experience we have in Europe to show more savvy and more composure and more tactical astuteness in first legs? Surely you would agree we have more quality than Monaco. Why is it that we seem to play in the knockout round like a team that's never been in the knockout round in Europe before. Um, I'll try and defend it in this way, in that although on the face of it, this tie was effectively exactly the same as it's panned out over the last few years, mm -hmm. in that we were out of the first leg and then we created this valiant 
heroic performance whereby we ended up just being going out on away goals. Um, but it effectively already been knocked out uh, before the second leg had kicked off. The difference was that we, in the previous games, whether it was Bayern um, or Milan, we had what was an ostensibly weaker side to the opposition we played, and yet we went and we tried to play the arse, you know, the Wenger way. We tried to play with the with possession of the ball. We tried to we tried to beat the team, which is fair I, to a certain degree. You can kind of understand at home, but you know, I, I mean, I guess you can look back to that Bayern Munich game and the way we started. And you had that Özil penalty and da 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 da, and you know, obviously football it it, it can hinge on on a moment. Um, um, well, I mean, you know, and if we want to go that route, we can talk about Giroud's missed chance against Chelsea at Stamford yeah, yeah, Bridge no, no, last but, season, but it is what it is. Yeah, yeah, of course. No, no, absolutely. But And that's not the route I'm, I'm going. What I'm saying is is that we were naive in a different way. I think it was a naiveness that was perhaps um, we, we'd shown consistently against the bigger sides where we, we thought we could we could continue to dominate possession of the game and, and, and really take the game... Again, sort of the cliche of by the scruff of the neck in the way that we do against the the, the lesser oppositions, given the type of players we have and the ability to re- recycle the ball. But ultimately, we just got dominated in our own game, and we were made to look silly. That being said, I don't think it was, I don't think it was necessarily the wrong tactics to implement against the Monaco side, whereby we were the favourites, we were we are the better team, and you know, as as you said, statistically. On this occasion, the the XG or the expected goals were far in our favour, which I doubt was anywhere near the case in in the ties against, say, the Bayerns and the Barcelonas and and the AC Milan. No, you're absolutely right. It was not the case. This was a reversal of those statistics, but I think you'd have to agree. Forget the first goal we conceded at home. The second two we conceded were a direct result of, honestly speaking, absurd way we chased that game. Absolutely. But listen, that that was a different type of mistake. It was still completely naive. It was still completely foolish. It still had me just as depressed as you. And look, I know I'm the I know I am this 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 ever optimistic Arsenal fan, but I was utterly distressed after that game. But it was yeah, a it different really type it was, it was a different type of error. It was a it was an error in that we were the favourites, we were the better team on the day. Um, or you know, we are the better team. We are the team that should, at home, look to win by a couple of goals, put the tie to bed, go away to Monaco, and you know, be able to grind out a draw, or you know, have a fairly comfortable result away from home to go through to the quarterfinals. But because the game plan, because the game in itself, partly because Monaco are, are, are particularly uh, you know are well suited to a team that comes at them to a certain degree, but there was certainly, you know, they were extremely efficient in the way that they put away those chances, but also the second and third goals. I mean, we just literally gifted it to them. I think because the way the game panned out and it went so outside, you know, we just hadn't planned, which, which, which was ridiculous. It was, I, I, I don't understand how a professional football club, a team that's in the Champions League has not addressed, you know, okay, well, Yes, we are the home side. They probably thought worst case scenario is nil nil come on the eighty fifth minute. We haven't scored. We haven't taken the lead. But they, I don't think they'd even anticipated going a goal down because they looked like they had no idea what to do because the the whole game plan was being undone by the fact that yes, we we missed, we did create a few plenty of chances and and we missed them, and that seemed to sort of compound the issue, especially going that goal down. And we just we 
we we played like you know there there was the old cliche of of you know of, of you know of opposition fans calling us children against men. We looked we we played in a very childish manner. We played like it there was, was no ex- second leg, and that's inexcusable for a team in its four hundredth consecutive year in the knockout rounds in the Champions League. And we, surely, the manager, who admitted after the game, we knew they would soak up pressure and counterattack, would have said to his team in the locker room, dressing room before the game, hey, this is a counterattacking side. If they do catch us on the counter and we fall behind, we can't chase that goal too aggressively because we'll be playing right into their strategy. We have to keep our head, we have to keep our shape, and we have to keep playing our football in, in a controlled possession style not chase frantically for a goal. But it didn't look like that. Look, we could go on forever, and Paul's already left us, and if our own podcaster is so bored he's gotten off the call, then surely we want to <laughs> spare our listeners any more of this. We can go on and on. I, I think it's it's always difficult to know how to feel. Last season and two seasons ago, certainly, when two seasons ago when we beat Bayern away and crashed out, that became the catalyst for the comeback of our season. That felt like a real moral victory. This does not feel like a moral victory. This just feels like defeat to me. And so it'll be interesting to see how the team responds to that. I think there will be an emotional drop-off at the weekend, and I think the manager will have to think about how to manage that because the players are in good form, but I think it's always hard after you've been eliminated from Europe in disappointing fashion to get up for sort of the mundane, everyday realities of playing in the Premier League trying to chase a top four finish so we'll see how that goes the next time we'll talk is after Newcastle James there's a lot more we could talk about but truthfully we're over the hour mark considerably we've already lost one of our podcasters to sheer boredom so we'll have a little more structure at the weekend too because I have to admit this podcast kind of troubled me because I it's hard to look at a second leg in abstraction Um, and that's what we've tried to do a little bit but as always I appreciate your positivity and your insight and I will look forward to speaking to you at the weekend as do I, Lynn. Thank you. Been a pleasure. Um, uh, once again, that's James. You can find him on Twitter, at GoonerFanatic49. Paul, who uh, has abandoned ship, understandably, is at Posin in my pants. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, at Yankee Gunner. Uh, thanks for bearing with us this podcast. This was a little tricky one because I think there's a lot of frustration, but it's a win, but it's a loss, but the win doesn't mean anything, but the win keeps our good form going. Who knows? If you can make more out of it than I can, then you should probably just stop listening to this podcast, which could be good advice anyway. But don't do that because we like James and Paul. Anyway, we'll talk to you after the Newcastle game. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Until then, cheers, and we'll talk to you in the weekend. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. (laughs) Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.